As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. This is Pretty Much Pop, a culture podcast capturing all the Dragon Balls and Poke Men and Sailor's Moon for delivery to you, the listeners. Today we're talking about manga. What is its appeal? What are its various types? What do Westerners commonly misunderstand about it? I'm Mark Linton Meyer, just an ordinary schoolboy who works hard, unaware of my grand destiny. I'm Erica Spires, and I highly recommend listening to this podcast from right to left. And I'm Brian Hurt. And while I couldn't get into Astro Boy, I gotta say Astro Middle-Aged Man really spoke to me. And our guest. My name is Deborah Shamoon. I am originally from the United States, but now I am a professor at the National University of Singapore in the Department of Japanese Studies. And my area of research is manga, particularly girls manga or shoujo manga. Welcome Dr. Shamoon, or Deborah as we're going to call you from now on. Thank you. I have been looking, we, we're friends from way back in college years and have been looking for an opportunity to have you on a podcast for a long time, but working manga into a philosophy thing, you said you'd written an article on Lacan, Lacanian analyses of manga, that seemed a little too niche. Yeah, I have to admit that was a stretch even for me. I, my basic field of research is modern Japanese literature and then popular culture branched out from that. So philosophy is not really my thing, but pop culture definitely is. And even for, as we were trying to figure out what the purpose of this discussion was, you're definitely vastly overqualified for whatever we <laughs> want to get out of this, which I think at the very least was, I don't think any of us, right, Erica, Brian, were into manga. It was just always sort of represented something in popular culture that is just like a weird thing that some people are into that we've seen bits of, but we never really understood. And this was an excuse for us to kind of delve in and take in some points of that. But I know that you weren't at least reading manga around me when we were hanging out. Oh, I was. You just never saw it. I mean, I started reading manga in high school. Okay. She was just sitting on the floor in the Barnes & Noble because that's where it happened. You'd walk no. around Barnes & Noble and there would be this group of girls just sitting there and they would never buy it. Dude, they would just read it. I am way older than that. That was after my time. No, that wasn't even happening back then. <laughs> How did you get involved in this? Like, number one, I don't know a lot of American women who read American comic books. I just don't know that many. So how did you, an American woman, get involved in Japanese manga? Oh, no, we're starting with my personal history. I thought we were going to start with the history of manga. All right, that's okay. <laughs> uh, I mean, you can do that. I mean, if you want to link it, that's fine. It's just interesting to me, like, because obviously there was some sort of point of entry for you. What might be the point of entry for others? She got into manga during the Meiji period. And then as World War II approached, <laughs> there are separate stories. I, you know, I was always a big nerd. So... 
I got into anime first because it was being translated and broadcast on American television in the 1980s. So I started watching all of those anime shows, the giant robot stuff that was mostly aimed at boys that was being broadcast in the U.S. So like Star Blazers and Robotech and all of that. I watched it obsessively through middle school and high school. And by the time I was a teenager, I had figured out that this stuff came from Japan and that there was actually very little that was being translated and a lot of it was being translated kind of badly. And so if I could learn Japanese, then I would know more about it. So I started learning Japanese in high school, and I did a study abroad during the summer of my junior year in high school. And then as I was getting into anime on TV, my younger brother was reading American comic books like Marvel and DC. And he used to go to the comic book store every few weeks to pick up new titles. And when he was there, he noticed that they had comic book adaptations of Robotech and some of this other stuff that I was watching. And he told me, and then that kind of got me into it. And so I started going to the comic book store. And then I happened to be right at the edge of the first wave of translations that started coming into the U.S. So around 1988, 1989, some American publishers started translating a few titles and they really had no idea what they were doing. They didn't know what the market was going to be for this and they didn't know which titles to pick. And the Japanese publishers were very unwilling to translate stuff. They didn't see a market for this in the U.S. at all. Even just looking at the entire market of Americans who were buying Marvel and DC comics, it was laughably small to them. So it didn't seem worth their while. So they picked a few random titles to translate. And again, it was all stuff that was aimed at boys, like Lone Wolf and Cub. But I started reading those and I got really into them as well. Because I was interested in all of this stuff, I decided to major in Japanese studies and, you know, improve my Japanese language. And then I started getting interested in it from an academic point of view, because I realized that you can study popular culture as an academic, you don't only have to study high culture. The two paths you could have gone down were either drawing this stuff, and I I hope we are going to see some notebooks with your scribbles in them. Oh, no. (laughs) I don't know. I don't know why I never went down that road. Uh, Deborah's (laughs) nodding her head, or to become an academic. I guess, yeah. Yeah, you know, I think about that now, like, why didn't I try drawing myself? But I don't know, that just wasn't really my thing. I'm a big nerd, what can I say? I like the really obscure, you know, like hunting down things that no one else has read. You know, that was always the case, and that's still the case today. To throw this out to the rest of us briefly, do we have any priors about this? I purposefully, actually, it was with Deborah that I watched my first anime vampire hunter d i believe it was oh my god i don't even remember that but it's almost my last anime i've watched very little since then my kids have gotten into it a little i've tried it on tv now and again but nothing would really stick with me but i'd never tried the comics at all and for this you know i was purposefully like avoiding anime and only reading a bunch of comics because i felt like maybe the things that were barriers for me were in the style of anime of those terrible voiceovers and the weird music and the bad frame rate on the animation and I figured maybe I should just go to the source and would like it better. 
Erica, though, you this time still were more watching anime adaptations, right? Yeah, and I freaking loved it. I had forgotten, like, it's not a very well-known secret that I am more of a watcher than a reader. So I was like, you know what? I'm going to get the most out of this by... The first thing I wanted to do is make sure I wasn't just watching anime and that I was watching actually things that had been translated from manga. But my point of entry with any of this was in high school. I had a... My boyfriend in high school had grown up in Asia, so he introduced me to Cowboy Bebop when I was in high school. And I loved it, and we watched a few others. I didn't really read any of them. And then, you know, we broke up and then I kind of quit watching anime and I, it, w- it was not really a thing for me. So I just like binged my way through some stuff and I've had a fun week getting reacquainted with it. So no, I haven't gotten the, the full on reading manga way. I, I read a little bit and it was a little disorienting at first to know where to look on the page because I have been reading comic books lately. And so I'm just used to that now. Well, it's not even consistent. If, if it's an English translation, is it going to go right to left? Is it going to go left to right? Sometimes we were looking at PDFs. I expected, should I start at the bottom? Like, oh, no, you don't start at the bottom. That's at least the certainty. <laughs> Brian, do you have any priors? I think my first would have been in high school. And again, just talking about manga and not anime, Barefoot Gen was a book that was given to a sibling and I read it and it's a loose autobiography of a boy who survived uh, their Hiroshima bombing and what comes after that. And I had read that and I remember finding it moving as much as idiot high school boy who had no sense of nuance could find anything moving. And I didn't really read much more after that. In fact, I went into my collection of comic books and graphic novels that I have at home to see if any of them might be manga. And I realized I have not a real big collection and I've read almost none of it. I think I have a desire to read comics and I don't think I'm very good at it. I find I just end up looking at the art and not really reading the story. And I remember even with Watchmen, having to just push through to get the story. So this is an art form I struggle with, not manga necessarily, but I think comics writ large is not something that comes naturally to me. So I've done my best and I've sampled quite a bit in preparation for today, but I can't say that I've had a flowering of appreciation for for this in preparation. Yeah, Deborah, have you found over time? So now, you know, it's transformed. You started this out of love of the genre, and now you write academically about it, and you're getting into the sociology of this, and what is the image of girlhood that was built up by shoujo manga in the 70s, and as women writers start taking over. Are you still reading this stuff for pleasure? Do you keep track of new titles at all? Or it seems like your comments to us were, no, everything new is just a ripoff of stuff that was 20 years ago. (laughs) Like the kind of standard old person of our generation comment about any young people's stuff. So the sad part about making an academic career about things that you love is that those things that you love become your work. And so it's really hard to now read manga for pleasure because I read it in a different way. So no, I don't keep up with that many titles. And, you know, I've never tried to follow what's popular now. So even when I read things that are new to me, I'm usually looking back to the 1960s and 70s, because that's where my research interests are. And also, you know, like, that's when the classic stuff was being written. I mean, there's some recent titles that I do follow, but not that many. And also, I think part of why you guys are having difficulty getting into manga is because we're all adults and a large, large proportion of manga is written for teenagers or at least young adults, people in their late teens, early 20s. There are just so many high school stories or coming of age stories. And, you know, for a long time, I could keep reading those. And then at a certain point, I was like, oh, I can't read another high school story. (laughs) 
this just isn't speaking to me anymore. <laughs> when I read, I'm usually thinking, especially right now, I'm thinking about the form. How is the narrative put together visually? How are the panels broken down? What is the character design? What are the transitions from panel to panel? So I'm not really reading as a fan so much. But, you know, I'm also a big fan of American comics and European comics. And so I read a lot of other comics in my spare time. I still read some like superhero titles. Lately, I've been reading a lot of webtoons, like free online comics. There's some really interesting creative things going on there. And it's interesting to see the mix of American, European, and manga styles that are going on right now. Yeah, can we characterize, so for folks that might be readers of Western comics, do you think that would be a natural transition to, of course, then international comics? But one of the articles I was reading was saying, oh, no, actually, manga is, in general, of course, there are going to be lots of different styles, but is meant to be read more quickly. This author was characterizing that once American comics made the move from sort of Disney, fast, newspaper comic strip style comics to more realistic, that slows you down and actually ended up marginalizing them, You know, made it so only a certain kind of reader would want to do this. It has to do with the industry and marketing. It's how these things are sold. So in the U.S., this very weird market condition emerged in the 1970s and 1980s where comics were sold as like single thin magazines and they were only available in comic book stores and they were really expensive. So you're paying quite a lot for something that's about 22 pages, maybe even 19 pages once you take out the advertising. And they're full color. And so readers feel like they want to get their money's worth. You know, they want to read it slowly. If you finish this thing that you paid $5 for in two seconds, you're like, what, that's it? And then I have to wait a month or maybe more for the next issue. And Marvel and DC house style tends to be very dense. Also, the way that Marvel Comics developed, you know, Stan Lee had what he called the Marvel method, which meant that he would write sort of the outline of the script and then give it to the artist and the artist would like fill it in. And then he'd write in the text later. And so you can feel there's a real disconnect between, especially in those ones from the 60s, between the art and the words, because Stan Lee didn't trust his artists. <laughs> He didn't trust them to get the story across. And so there's a lot of repetition and talkiness. So they would give him back, you know, the finished artwork, and then he would explain in the text what was happening in the art. So they're really talky and dense. And that style is, is somewhat persisted. Manga, on the other hand, sold in these gigantic magazines that will have an anthology of 10 or 12 stories in each issue, and they come out every week. You know, and the artist and the author are usually the same person. So you don't have this disconnect between the text and the pictures. And it's really, really cheap. And you have lots and lots of pages. And so it's okay if you can read it really fast. You still have this, you know, gigantic magazine of like 200 or 300 pages. So you don't feel like you're not getting your money's worth. And then after that initial printing in the magazine, then it gets reprinted in, you know, more permanent volumes. And so people can buy them or borrow them. And then you'll have volumes, you know, like series that will go on for like 100 volumes. So there's just a lot more pages and the artists can speed up the pacing a lot more. I was also surprised, this was from an article called Confessions of a Manga Translator by Zach Davison, and he says, Japanese is not translation-friendly. It is a high-context language. This means that Japanese can use fewer words, relies more heavily on cultural context to communicate what's going on in the scene. So that's notoriously difficult. I also found it difficult even in some of these action comics, like, what is going on? There's some flurry of something, and I'm trying to figure out who's kicking who, or... Wouldn't you just trip past it and say, well, it can't be that important? I mean... No, so manga is highly iconic. The art style that has developed in mainstream 
manga for both boys and girls. It's not meant to be realistic. They're icons that are quickly deciphered by informed readers. I mean, people who are familiar with the conventions of manga. And so you have these things that in Japanese they call mampu. You translate that as manga notation. So these little um, shorthand images that let you know what's going on in the scene. Once you've read a lot of this stuff, you figure out how to decipher it pretty quickly. And then that shorthand allows the artist to pack a tremendous amount of information into some very simple or very quick drawings. And then it becomes really meaningful for people who are used to deciphering that. But it does tend to repel people who are not used to that style. That's true of shonen or seinen manga, so comics for boys. But it's especially true of shoujo manga or comics for girls. And in comics for girls, it's really on purpose because it's letting the readers know that it's addressing them specifically. And so even manga critics in Japan who are men, when manga criticism first started coming out in the 1980s, they'd say things like, I can't read shoujo manga. It doesn't make any sense to me. I look at the pictures, I don't understand what's happening. These are Japanese men, you know, people that should have the cultural context, at least linguistically. But Well, yeah, but they don't have the girls' culture context. Uh, it sounds like an outgroup has been created on purpose by the artistic creators. Yeah, so I don't think that Japanese readers are looking at it and just skipping those parts. Like, they're, they're getting what's going on. Some examples of manga notation, like when a character is angry, they'll have a vein throbbing in their forehead, but the drawing of the vein has become so simplified that it just kind of looks like a little X or like the outline of an X. And you can put that anywhere in the picture. It doesn't even need to be on a character. You can put it in a word balloon or in the background or something. Or like if they're embarrassed, there'll be a sweat drop and then it'll just appear somewhere. So so readers know how to interpret that. That's really cool. But what's the point of that and not just putting it on their face? It becomes a free-floating icon. So you don't need to draw the whole face in order to do that. First of all, it allows the artist to speed up their drawing. And it also means that you don't need to replicate the face every time, especially for shoujo manga, where there's really not very much action. It would be incredibly boring if you had a long dialogue scene where it's just talking heads, two faces, back and forth, back and forth. And so they've developed all of these different stylistic tools to make it more visually interesting. And that's one of them. Wow. So I want to see a shoujo manga adaptation of My Dinner with Andre, uh, <laughs> where they can have each... Each time there's somebody saying something, they can have the entire, there's streaks behind them. And, you know, that I like that with shoujo manga in particular of because there's not as much action, making the emotions boil off to fill the entire panel. Yeah. And the other thing that they do, especially in shoujo manga, that shows up elsewhere, that's really hard to translate is the use of sound effects. It's a feature of the Japanese language that there are tons of words that are sound effects that are just part of the lexicon, way, way more than we have in English. And there's different classes of these sound effect words. So you have ones that are sound imitating that are similar to what we have in English, like click or bang or bump or things like that. But there's a whole other class of things that do not really make a sound, but there are sound effects for them. So there are sound effects for all kinds of emotions, for movement. So all of these different things. And so artists will take advantage of this so that they don't really need to actually draw those things. And shoujo manga artists especially will do this. They will write in the sound effect for an emotional state, like, you know, a thumping heartbeat or, you know, sudden embarrassment, or there's a sound effect for silence too, which is sheen. 
That's the sound of silence. Sheen. Okay. <laughs> or they'll have, there'll be sound effects for like someone standing up or sitting down. And so they don't need to draw the motion. They can just write in the sound effect. And that becomes very difficult to translate into English because we don't have those words. Although I've started to see this even in comics that have not been translated by artists that have been influenced by reading a lot of manga. They'll write things like stand up, which it still seems weird to me to see that written in the background of an English language comic. But I don't think it's interesting how these things are moving across cultures. Deborah, you've really deepened my ignorance by telling me all of what I've been missing. Uh, all these great words I thought were onomatopoetic, I guess not. So uh, I'm looking through Akira right now, but I think Kashin, yeah, that was one that I'm, I guess I don't know what that sound was supposed to be or. No, I think that's probably just a sound. <laughs> as far as like what comics mean to the kids who are reading them, is it similar as it is here in the United States with kids reading comics? I feel like there's always something about being like a little bit different and they have a superpower that makes them special or they have some way in which they're an outsider and that ends up being their superpower. Do you find the same themes and the same kind of significance in manga? Like, would that be easily identifiable for an American kid to read and notice? I mean, those kinds of stories are definitely out there. You know, that's why they're being translated and brought to the U.S. But you have to remember, manga is just a medium. It's not a genre. So within this medium of manga, there's every kind of genre. This is one of the big differences between manga in Japan versus comics in the U.S. Comics in the U.S., because of intense censorship in the 1950s, they used to have every kind of genre, and then they like boiled down to just superheroes. And then you know, it took decades for other genres to start to reappear. And even then, superheroes are still the dominant genre for comics. But that was never the case in Japan. Japan never had that same wave of moral panic and censorship. And so there's just a vast array of different kinds of genres. And even though manga started out as aimed at children in the 1950s and 60s, by the 70s, they were diversifying into older demographics. And so now there's manga for everything. And so there are nonfiction informational manga. You know, there's manga for young children, for boys, for girls, for adult men or adult women. It's hard to say like what the dominant storyline is. It depends on what genre you're looking at. So if we're just limiting to the equivalent of what gets translated in the US, that's, that would be shonen manga, so or maybe seinen, so stuff that's aimed at boys or teenagers, young adults. Remember, it's being read by everybody. It's not just a weird niche thing for nerds <laughs> and loners. So the biggest manga magazines like uh, Shonen Jump and things like that, you know, these are mainstream stories that are aimed at, you know, the average high school boy or middle school boy. And so the most dominant narrative that you see is what they call in Japanese gambareba dekiru, which means like if you try hard, you can do it. And so you have these stories of a kid who isn't the best at something, but he works really, really hard at it and then eventually rises to the top. I mean, a lot of the ones that are most famous here are the superhero manga. Is that through Western influence that went over there and is springing back this way? Or did, was that more or less independent? I mean, the issue of influence is it's hard to define exactly. In the 1950s and 60s, I mean, surprisingly, there actually was quite a bit of American comics that were being translated. And so there was some influence at that point. 
really since the 30s. A lot of this stuff was available in Japan, and so artists were copying them, especially Tezuka. But by the 70s, as the manga industry really flourished and became so much more diverse and rich, and at the same time, comics in the U.S. were dwindling because of censorship, people lost interest in American comics. So I think the influence of American comics really waned in the 80s. There wasn't so much available. That's changed a bit now with the Marvel Universe and movies, because, of course, everybody watches those movies in Japan. And so they become more familiar with them. But for a long time, American comics was kind of a niche, like, nerd thing in Japan. American comics are still pretty nerdy in America compared to the movies. Just like manga can be really hard to get into as an outsider, I think particularly Marvel comics, can be really hard to get into as an outsider. And so that makes it hard for overseas fans to get into translations as well. That is definitely true. A friend of ours recently contacted my husband and said, I want to start getting into comic books, but I don't know where to begin because they're the same characters that have existed for ages. Where do I even start? And he said, just pick one and go because there's always going to be something you haven't read. And this is something I think is different, right? In a lot of manga is that they're more self-contained the same characters don't necessarily last as long as like Batman has lasted. Or is that a misconception? The industries are set up totally differently. There's more creator control. Once an artist creates a character, most of the time they retain the rights to that. And so they're the only ones who are creating those stories. So you don't have an equivalent of the Marvel Universe where the same iconic characters get recycled over and over again and written by different people. You do have very long-running series, so something like Dragon Ball will go on and on and on and on. But it's not so much that the same characters are constantly being resurrected and retconned and reintroduced the way that happens in the Marvel Universe. I mean, Marvel and DC storytelling is a very weird thing. No other media or no other genre really tells stories in the same way. And I say this as a big fan. I mean, I love this stuff. I think it's great. To answer your friend's question, I mean, the way you get into this is you get in a time machine and go back to when you were 10 years old and start reading it then. (laughs) (laughs) This is why I say Marvel is kind of their own worst enemy, you know? So I was trying to see if even Astro Boy or something had been revived. I see there have been multiple anime versions of it, but like, have there been multiple revivals of the manga with different writers continuing that story? So Tezuka is a big exception. Do you want me to get more into Tezuka Osamu? I have a lot to say about him. Sure. Osamu Tezuka generally taken as sort of the Walt Disney of manga. So first of all, that's a really problematic thing to say. Because he has a very strange relationship with Disney. Tezuka is held up as the god of manga because he was really the first person to create what they call story manga. That means manga that is a narrative, right? So manga is in distinction to, say, a comic strip, right? Which is just four panels with a joke at the end or like a one panel newspaper comic, right? All those things exist in Japan as well. And you were saying even those big eyes, like the characteristic art style was there but just not in narrative form before him. There was narrative manga as early as the 1920s and 30s. Tezuka grew up reading all of this stuff. When he was a kid, there were bootleg copies of Disney comics all over Japan. They were super popular, but they were plagiarized or redrawn or pirated translations. That's how he learned to draw, by copying these things and creating his own plagiarized Disney comics. So he was too young to have been drafted in World War II. He was a teenager. He was conscripted to work in a factory, which happened to most teenage boys during the war years. 
And then afterwards, he trained as a medical student, right? This shows up in his stories a lot, his interest in medicine. But he started publishing comics after the war ended when he was still a teenager. Then uh, I think like a year later, he came out with his first big hit, which was called New Treasure Island. It was an adventure story. And artists now looking back at that talk about how revolutionary it was because it had what they call a cinematic style, making it look like a car is moving through three-dimensional space. But uh, really, he was copying Disney comics when he did that. Starting with the popularity of New Treasure Island and then continuing on, he started writing a lot of adventure sci-fi robot stories for young kids. And that became hugely popular. He had a very, very strange way of working. He developed what he called the star system because he was very influenced by film. In his mind, he created a studio of actors and he would cast these actors in his manga. But this was never explicitly stated in the manga themselves. This was just something that would become apparent as you read all of his work. You would realize that he used the same character designs over and over again. But we know from his notebooks and diaries that this was not just reusing character designs, that he actually thought of these as independent, real people. And he made these long lists of the actor's name, the studio that they worked for, if they were a principal or supporting player, what their salary was, and then all of the roles that they had had in his various manga. People who read all of his work, and they're, you know, through the 60s, 70s, 80s, he had this huge fan base. This would become evident as they read it. And it rewards close reading. So I think this is one of the reasons he has so many fans, because you feel like an informed reader the more that you read this and the more that you recognize it. You had sent us some Metropolis, late 40s, which I found among the more difficult of the things I tried to get into. I'm mostly processed, it was probably aimed at eight-year-olds, right? Yeah, so Metropolis was one of his first big stories. He, he wrote it in 1949. It was before he came up with the character of Astro Boy. But you can see a lot of the beginnings of that kind of character. It's about a robot that looks like a small child. And it's full of this mid-century optimism about science and technology and how, you know, if we're not careful... With science, you know, we will end up with nuclear war. But if we are careful with it, then, you know, we can have a bright future. So there's a lot of this sci-fi optimism about it. But because Tezuka was writing serialized stories for very young children, what he really valued above all else was telling an exciting story and ending every week on a cliffhanger. And so the story kind of rambles all over the place. If you read the whole thing compiled, it doesn't exactly hold together as a coherent narrative. But I mean, you have to imagine, you know, you're eight years old and reading this every week or every month in a magazine and just getting a little bit of the story at a time. So that was true of all of his writing for a long time. In the 1960s and 1970s, as manga started diversifying and more and more artists started to create more experimental works, he got into this more experimental stuff as well. But he was outshined by some of his students and that created a lot of professional jealousy. Tezuka was always a shameless self-promoter and he promoted himself as the god of manga and because he had all of these rabid fans, they also promoted him as the god of manga. And so there's this myth that like he is this single-handed person who formed manga and that the reason that there's manga in Japan and you know the comics industry, say in the US, is so anemic is because there was a Tezuka, you know. If you think about it, it's nonsense, you know, like, is any other serious historian believe this great man myth? You know, it, it doesn't work that way. The reason why there's manga in Japan is because they didn't have censorship the way that they had in the U.S. 
The other myth about Tezuka that gets repeated is that he invented shoujo manga. I wanted to get into that. I've got an article here that I'll link folks to that was in particular about Princess Knight. And, you know, we already saw in Metropolis this proto-Astro Boy flying child artificial construction character, basically a superhero, has androgynous characteristics, has like a button, you know, and by the time of Princess Knight became like, a really enduring theme that this is a character that literally is like born a girl, but has like a boy's heart stuffed in her mouth and has to pretend to be a boy. And that's apparently established since that was taken to be one of the first shoujo manga things. Then that set off this theme of just weird takes on gender. Tezuka wrote Princess Knight in 1955. And this is what often gets held up as the first shoujo manga. But it wasn't because it was published in a girl's magazine called Shoujo Friend. And there was other manga being published in it at the same time. There had been comics for girls since the 1930s. What was different about Princess Knight was that it was an action story. Where comics for girls up until that point tended to be either just gags and silly jokes or romance stories or like mother-daughter like melodramas. Tezuka brought this same action aesthetic that he had been using in comics for boys to girls' comics, and that was what made it so popular. Tezuka himself said that he thought of Princess Knight as an homage to the Takarazuka. The Takarazuka is an all-girl theater troupe that began in 1914, and it's still around today, where girls do song and dance review and musical theater, and some of the girls play male roles. I mean, this is a feature of girls' culture. It's hugely popular among girls. And, you know, Tezuka grew up in the Osaka area, and he was very close to the Takarazuka Theater. So he was a big, big fan. I think his first teenage crush was on a Takarazuka actress. That is the reason why there is this androgyny and gender switching in Princess Knight, because he thought of the main character, Sapphire, as the equivalent of a Takarazuka actress who plays male roles, who's both male and female. The other reason why I say that Princess Knight is not the first shoujo manga is because Tezuka wrote it as an action story, and he used the same visual aesthetic that he used in his other stories, like Atomu in uh, Astro Boy, which is this sort of disnified, slightly, you know, like squash and stretch style. And the eyes are big, but they're, they're not that prominent. Whereas artists for girls' magazines since the 1920s had been developing this kind of signature big-eyed style, uh, particularly the really big eyes with big highlights and the emphasis on emotion and interiority. And you don't see any of that in Princess Knight. It's really just an action story. And the main character, like, it's not really about her emotions. It's about her, like, trying to defeat the bad guys. But at the same time, in uh, 1955, 1956, Tezuka, he nurtured the careers of lots and lots of artists. And right at that time, he was nurturing the career of a female artist named Mizuno Hideko. And she had started her own series called Gin no Hanabira, which means Silver Petals. And it's a similar kind of action story, also set in this sort of fake, disnified medieval world. But that story has the shoujo aesthetic that we recognize. It has the emphasis on clothing and the really big eyes with lots of highlights and the emphasis on the emotions of the main character. Deborah, before we get too far from Princess Knight, I'm just curious, who did Tezuka write it for? Right, This is sort of this new thing. Well, new for him. Yeah, yeah. He was writing it for girls. This was for elementary school age girls who were buying this magazine. 
So you have this other series that's coming out at the same time, and he copied her. After her work started to come out, he completely changed his style. And it's hard to see it now because the other way that he self-promoted himself is he was constantly rewriting his stories. So they would appear in the magazine in one way. And then before it would get reprinted, he would completely revise it. And then when it get reprinted again, he'd revise it again. And he would completely redraw it. So it's actually really difficult to see what his original stories were like when they were first published. And so he rewrote Princess Knight many times. And after Mizuno Hideko was such a success, he completely revised it to look and seem more like her comic. And so that's how he was addressing girls. Would they have been consuming the so-called boys manga up to that point because girls wouldn't have just been interested in these girls magazines yeah this is always the case you know girls will always consume boys media boys rarely consume girls media there was a large variety of magazines since the 1920s that were aimed at girls specifically and they carried a variety of different kinds of content so you had serialized novels with lots of illustrations you had some comics or manga of different styles like some of them were just gags or you know a page or two long there were essays and poetry and things like that and then through the 1950s and 60s those magazines started to shift their content until it became more and more and more manga and then eventually they were all manga and i know some of your research has been about the values and pictures of girlhood that were of course built through a variety of entertainment media and other influences but that you could see starkly in manga and part of that was the shift from mostly male creators to mostly female creators. I have Sailor Moon in front of me, which is uh, <laughs> sort of in the same, in the tradition, I guess, influenced by the Princess Knight, but is the prototypical. I guess one of the things I was reading was saying that that was sort of the shonen and the shoujo combined, that it was taking the action comic thing, but still making it the art style and the aesthetic for girls. Yeah, exactly. That's the reason why Sailor Moon was such a big deal when it came out. So, you know, within shoujo manga, the magical girl subgenre, I guess you call it, has always been really popular. Since the 1960s, there were stories about girls who could, you know, transform and do magic. And it's a metaphor for adolescent maturation. But what Takeuchi Naoko did that was different in Sailor Moon was that she merged that shoujo aesthetic with the Super Sentai story. So Super Sentai are these TV series that are live action and have special effects. And they're mostly aimed at boys where you have a team of five characters that will transform and fight the bad guys. So Power Rangers is the most well-known outside of Japan, but there's tons of these shows within Japan. So she did the same thing. Like She created you know, the, the five-person color-coded team of magical girls. And then, you know, that proved really popular. And so there have been endless copies and retellings of this kind of model. Well, not to just totally make this a shitting on Tezuka party, but I'll say one thing. History is definitely written by the self-promoters, right? And we see some parallels with, I just can't help thinking of Stanley. And what I don't know that much about the American industry, in part, as I said, I don't read it that much, but I have friends who do and and friends who are involved in the industry and talk about how his role in the U.S. is just totally overinflated. And you would think he invented the comics and he didn't. I'm really pleased that I dug up this source for all of us to look at called The Comic Book History of Manga, which is, as I said when I shared it with the group, it was really written as a pian to Tezuka. And you'd think he was the only person. And that's kind of how it's presented. But I think the key thing here is this is a, an American publication and written by Westerners who 
they're getting it through their own lens. And I'm not saying they didn't do their research, but they do have their own cultural understanding of what things are in part by what filtered over to them. Also worth noting, this was written or published in the early 2000s. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to be too mean to these guys. Because they're repeating what gets repeated everywhere. No, you could just be mean to me for sharing it with the group. (laughs) They're fine. They don't care. So nothing that they're saying in there is stuff that they made up. Tezuka definitely was a self-promoter. And I think the comparison to Stan Lee is pretty apt. But it's not just that Tezuka promoted himself. It's that he had this very, very powerful fan base that was also promoting him. And some of these people were the ones who started manga studies in Japan. These guys who grew up in the 50s and 60s and read this stuff as children and then as adults started writing like manga is what Tezuka created and anything else that is not like that is not really manga or is not worthy of our consideration. And, you know, everything in the manga world stemmed from him. This is all great historical stuff to have. And it seems like your approach is sort of like if you're getting into rock and roll as a young person and somebody says, some old person like like us says, well, first you got to know the Beatles and you got to know the Stones. You know, you can't just go listen to the Jonas Brothers or whatever and think you understand rock and roll. Come on. <laughs> and so, you know, is this the kind of approach you would recommend for, you know, new people getting into manga and anime is to, you'll have a better appreciation of the new stuff by learning these classics or is it really, no, actually the classics are going to be that much more foreign and listeners can't hear, but I got a stack out of the library of... <laughs> Oh my God. Uh, I just, look, you know, use some of the top 10 lists. He does his research. And there are a couple <laughs> things like Akira that are, you know, classics in the genre. We might even have an Akira specific episode or Dragon Ball Z that goes way back. But the stuff that I, I actually liked that I enjoyed the most, like my son is a fan of Death Note. And this is the one of the only books that I picked up during this that I was like, I'm going to get the next volume of this. Like I'm actually, (laughs) this is an actually interesting for adult story. And that could be just because it's, what is this, Sinan as opposed to Shonen? Sinan. Sinan. Okay. You know, in other words, I'm actually sort of within the target audience. It's, you know, it's still reading young YA fiction, but at least it's not like Dragon Ball where I feel like I'm reading DuckTales or something like that. Did you know, just throwing this in there with Death Note, it is actually a musical, and a friend of mine is the musical supervisor. Whoa. (laughs) Death Note, I think around the same time he was telling me he was doing this, it came out on Netflix. Is it a film version or is it a series? I haven't seen it. There's both. And my son says that the series is very on point to the, yeah, he hasn't read the manga, but that the film is just a bastardization. It's just this shortened. To get back to your original question, People like what they like. People should read what they like to and not worry about the history of manga. But, you know, when someone is claiming to give the history of manga, that's when I start arguing, saying, no, that, that's not how it happened. Tezuka's star is waning, unfortunately. You know, his stuff is not as widely read and highly regarded as it used to be, partly because, you know, times are changing and there's so much other stuff instead. I don't think that you need to read the classics in order to understand manga. I was thinking of it more in terms of like film, right? If you can imagine someone who has never seen a movie and they say, oh, I've heard that there are these movie things, like maybe I should watch one. (laughs) Like what's the top movie? What's a movie that I should watch? And you know, like you can't even begin to answer that question because there's just so much. I think you have them watch The Sixth Sense and about a half hour before it's over, you spoil it. (laughs) Why do people answer rhetorical questions? (laughs) 
that's a, a good point, and it does get to this whole idea of suggesting stuff for people, maybe because it's good for them sometimes. And I think there's a time for it, right? And there came a point in my life when All About Eve and Sunset Boulevard were the movies I needed to be seeing, but it was at a real specific point in my life, and it, if I came any sooner those would have been not only wasted experiences, they would have negatively impacted my ability to appreciate them for the first time when I finally was in the right headspace to see them for the first time. Yeah, well, I think that's the difference between an academic approach and a fan approach. So that's the approach I take in my teaching. You know, like I give my students things to read and watch because I think it'll be good for them, not because I necessarily think that, you know, it's something they would love. You know, if they do end up loving it, that's great. That's like a bonus. But we approach these things differently depending on the context we're encountering it in. So what was the, you shared The Heart of Thomas by Moto Hagio, which is, so that was just an example of, it's shoujo manga, it's aimed at girls, but it's an all boys school of, you know, 13 year olds that are, have a lot of homosexual undertones or, or, you know, overt things. Yeah. Was that just to show that, yeah, shoujo manga is not what you think. Like, what was the status of that? Why did you share that in particular? So The Heart of Thomas is a classic. I mean, if you're looking for the classics, like uh, the classics of shoujo manga, there it is. And also it's been translated. Some of the other classics of shoujo manga have not been translated and they're harder to get at. Also, it's short, relatively speaking. The whole thing is only about 500 pages, you know, instead of like 100 volumes. I think some of your listeners may be aware, but shoujo manga is mainly about romance. And there's a lot of heterosexual romance stories, but there's a ton of homosexual romance stories about love between two boys or two men. You know, in terms of why this is appealing, I think it's the same reason why Slash is appealing in fan fiction. You know, women like being able to manipulate boys' bodies and, you know, the same way that uh, men typically do, you know, the male gaze in uh, movies and TV. And also, I mean, less so today, but more, especially when this genre was developing in the 1970s, sex and romance for teenage girls is always inherently risky. There's the risk of uh, pregnancy or loss of reputation, especially in the 70s, it was really hard to show a relationship, a heterosexual relationship between equals. So uh, having both characters be the same gender was a way to get around that. And if they're both male, then they're slightly distant from the reader herself. So there's a just enough distance to allow them to immerse themselves in these, uh, we're often very sexualized stories, very erotic, but in a, a safe way. But as you can see in The Heart of Thomas, the characters are drawn in a very feminine way. So the female characters are obviously being asked to identify with the, the teenage boy characters. And, and the other thing about The Heart of Thomas, I think that is a bit different from later shoujo manga, is that it's actually quite a deep story. There's a lot of symbolism and emotion in the story, and it, it lends itself more to a deep literary kind of reading. It's not just all surface and joke, the way that a lot of shoujo manga is. Maybe this is obvious, but I assume since it's typically the same author as illustrator, that makes a little bit of difference in terms of what they deem is the most important part of manga. If somebody were to pick it up, do you think that the intent of the writer is that they pay more attention to the story visually or the story that's written? Yeah, that's a good point. I think that it makes a huge difference. I think this is one of the reasons why narrative in manga is so heavily visual. And often you'll have a lot more 
image than text. And they rely on the images to tell the story. And usually there aren't very many text boxes, especially if you look at Marvel comics, there are these little yellow text boxes that tell you what's happening. And in manga, occasionally you have these narration text boxes, but it's rare because the artist is telling the story, you know, herself or himself. There's a, a really interesting book of comics and philosophy by a comic artist named Nick Susanus. It's called Unflattening. And he's trying to be kind of like the next generation Scott McCloud, like talking about comic storytelling and comics medium. He thinks that this is one of the fundamental differences between comics and manga, that in a Japanese cultural context, there's an embrace of images. Whereas in Western cultural context, there's a suspicion of image and that text is like where the real intellectual work is happening and that images are something to be suppressed or feared. And you see this in the, the way that comic storytelling happens. I mean, usually I try to avoid these kind of big generalizations, but I think there is something to what he's saying. We love the big generalizations. Yeah. And also that was put beautifully. Thank you. Can we say a little about is going through this experience made us like manga more? Like I was thinking up until probably yesterday, no, <laughs> but actually it was, it was by reading some of your book, Passionate Friendship, the Aesthetics of Girls Culture in Japan and thinking about this from a more academic point of view. And that got me on this tear of reading articles like the one on gender politics in Princess Knight and things that then when I turned back to the manga, I actually got into it quite a bit more. I don't know if that was coincidental or causal. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, yeah, no, I, I don't know that I will make this a continuous part of my reading, but I've gotten past some of the, the basic hurdles. Brian, you seemed less optimistic last time we checked in about this. I still feel like the blind man <laughs> and the elephant. I grabbed some part of it. I don't know what it was. I don't oh, know. God. Like <laughs> what is this movie thing? Like, what is Hollywood? I don't understand. <laughs> <laughs> Erica, any change here? You just said it was a nice revisitation, but what? It's interesting that you said that I didn't realize in the 80s that American comics had gone down. The consumerism, I guess, of, of American comics had gone down in the 80s because I knew that I didn't really grow up with them. I have two older brothers and you'd think that because I played with their toys and, and watched their shows that I would have also read their comics, but they weren't really reading them. Yeah, that was not a part of anything I was aware of. And so it's only been recently that I've ever read comics at all. So yeah, I would say there's more of an interest. I'm still not like, let me go buy them right now. And like, I can't wait. But I am, something I am getting, and we, not that this is exactly related, but we watched all of Rick and Morty and talked about that, right? I also just didn't have much of an interest in cartoons in general as an adult. And I will say that all of these experiences of watching and reading and experiencing something different than what I am used to has enriched definitely my time during quarantine. And there's never been a better time, I think, to get a hold of something that you might be uncomfortable with or unfamiliar with and try it. Because right now, I think we all need a little something different than what we see every day. Yeah, get a big stack of it and put it on the ground and roll around in it. That worked for me. <laughs> Well, thanks, Deborah. Wonderful connecting with you at last. Yeah, you too. Thank you. It was great to meet you. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for joining us, and thank you, listeners. So long, listeners. Bye. Get more Pretty Much Pop at prettymuchpop.com. Get bonus content for every episode at patreon.com slash prettymuchpop. Pretty Much Pop is part of the Partially Examined Life podcast network, and it's also presented by openculture.com. 
As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply.